Okay, you can go to Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, verses 5 through 9. Hebrews 5 through 9. I'm sorry, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. And last week, we had a difficult message last week. Um, The writer of Hebrews really gave us a strong warning, a strong message of exhortation that we must not drift away, we must not neglect such a great salvation that we have. It was spoken to them through the Word. It was spoken to them through the Lord. It was spoken to them through those that heard from the Lord. And yet they still were being apathetic. And so that was a very uh, strong message from the Lord there that we need to pay attention. And today, I believe in this passage, it expands on a little bit more on what this writer is trying to tell us about that. Now, if you've read chapter 1, you know he talked all about angels, about comparing Jesus to the angels and how great he is compared to that. And then it seems like out of nowhere he dropped in what we read last week, this strong warning that we just talked about. And now here again he starts to talk about the angels. He says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, and what I'm about to read, it's in caps. This is from the Old Testament when you see that. But this is actually from Psalm 8, what um, Kevin just read. It says, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him, capital H, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, have you ever had an experience in your life where you had a great expectation about something? Maybe the way something would turn out. You really had the perspective. You, You knew that this was really going to be a home run. But in the end, not that you failed, but the result was much smaller than you anticipated. Maybe it was a great business idea. I don't know if you've ever had those. I've had a few that I thought were just slam dunks and great. And man, it looks on paper that this is going to work. But then once they're executed, bam, little potential. We can see the same thing with investments. This is really going to take off. And then very little return. Of course, if you're a parent, and you've ever played, uh, your child has ever played youth football, you'll see a lot of parents with big expectations. Their, pa- their kids are going to the NFL, you know, and uh, the NFL is a difficult thing to do. Now, they may end up playing high school ball or college ball, but again, it's not the NFL or that five foot two teenager who has a good jump shot. He's definitely going to make it in the NBA. Well, we've all had these big expectations with small results, but I think what's even worse is when we have small expectations, when in reality, 
what we're looking at can be much bigger. We have a small perspective of something that's really, really big. Just to give you an example, my daughter and I went to a fitness event a couple of years back. We had saved all year to go to this thing. It was some of the greatest athletes in the world. And we bought special VIP tickets. We were silver VIP, of course. We weren't the premium, platinum, whatever it was. But one of the benefits of having this ticket and what we so looked forward to was to be able to go into this expo one hour before everyone else was allowed in and you could meet all the best athletes. You could go up and they're all at tables and you could talk to them. Athletes from all over the world. And uh, we walked in and it was probably a room about this big and we saw a bunch of athletes, but we didn't recognize any of them. You know, one was from Norway, one was from France, one was from here and there. And I mean, it was, it was good, but, you know, we're looking back and there's everybody waiting in line. The line's going all the way, all the way back to, so they can come in an hour later. And we're like, well, I guess this is it. And so we sort of float around and we try to communicate with some of these people. And then the hour was up and the gates opened and the whole crowd comes in and rushes by us. And we didn't notice it, but back at the corner of the room, there was this little entranceway to a room 10 times the size with all the athletes that we wanted to see. <laughs> and of course, we said, all right, let's go back. So we walked back there and, you know, the lines are long and we're not going to wait in line. We just sort of we floated around. But, you know, we had this we had this very small perspective, but because we missed the minor details, we missed that big, gigantic perspective. Now, as we learned last week, the Hebrews, like I said, they were apathetic towards the message of who Jesus was. They began drifting away from the gospel. They were neglecting the salvation. But in this passage, our writer gives us a hint. Now, I I mentioned last week that, and even today, it seems weird that he dropped that section of scripture right there. And it was, I believe, something that the writer looked at and probably put there after the fact. It's pure pat speculation. But I believe he did that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But then when you look further to this passage we're in today, we see a few hints on one of the reasons, or maybe several of the reasons, why they were neglecting such a great salvation. Were they missing the big picture? They, I believe, weren't able, from what we're about to see, they weren't able to see the forest through the trees. Their perspective and their expectation of who Jesus was, and really, more importantly, as the focus is in this passage, who they are in Christ. I believe that was small. I believe they weren't looking at it on just how enormous our salvation actually is. Now, most people think the Jewish people had this very superior view of salvation, that they were going to work their way, go up the moral ladder, work their way to God with good works, as long as they outweigh the bad works. But that's really half the story. Salvation meant for the Jews a lot of different things. And so I think it's important that we see this to get the context right. The first thing that they really saw was rescue from their enemies. That's what most of the Old Testament proclamation is about. And now with hindsight, we can look at it through the lens of the new and see ultimately what this really meant in terms of Christ coming to be rescued from their enemies. But that's what they wanted. They wanted their enemies gone. 
They wanted to be the people of God. They wanted the state of their nation to be, to stand out like God had always promised. They they also looked at salvation as the inauguration of the kingdom to come. And that's who they mistakenly, when when they mistakenly thought Jesus was that militant uh, Messiah, because they were like, all right, let's go. The kingdom's coming in. Let's go attack. You know, we got all these people ready to go. They wanted liberation from Rome. And one of the most important, they wanted to restore proper temple worship where nobody was overseeing it and limiting what they could do. They wanted their national symbols to be set back in order, like their land and all the burial places. They were under Roman rule at this time, and they felt when salvation, when they thought of salvation, they thought of rescue. When they thought of rescue, they thought of this Messiah coming and doing just that. Having to go to heaven is not necessarily found in any of the Jewish writings that are in the scriptures. Maybe in some of the uh, apocryphal writings, they hint at it, but really what it was about was resurrection. In Daniel 12, 2 and verse 13, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And then in 13, but as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end, then you will enter rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. But this is basically where it stopped. They weren't like we are. We're, so, we're very, uh, we have a, a, a Christian culture that's obsessed with going to heaven, obsessed with getting out of here. That's not what the Old Testament, nor necessarily what Jesus was talking about. Now, yes, we are going to go to a place called heaven when we die. But again, that's page one of a multiple page book that I believe this passage is, opens up a lot to us, gives us that signpost. And so I believe that our writer is drawing our attention to this passage, which is the connective tissue to the last four verses about a great salvation. And the reason why is he says in verse five, For he didn't subject to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So he's talking about, remember, we talked about all this through the first chapter of Hebrews, that this is a kingdom royal uh, theme to it. That Jesus is much more than just the son of God. He is also the king who rules and reigns with all authority. writer here is trying to expand their view. So he does. He quotes from Psalm 8, and the key word there, as Kevin read, but it's not in here, is, O Lord, how majestic is your name through all the earth. That word majestic is only used in a royal sense. This is a prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah, reigning over the world as king. Now, Psalm 8 starts with that verse, And it ends with that verse. And what we see in the middle is about mankind. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're even concerned about him? If you think about how separate we are from God. Again, you and I, in our best state, we're never, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how good, uh, many good like deeds of righteousness you do, which it's great to do good works. I'm not saying that. 
But no matter what it is that we do in our flesh, it doesn't even get on the map with God. It's not even at all about that with God. But yet God looks down at us and remembers us. And he's concerned about us. God knows every one of your thoughts, every one of your struggles. And he's not there condemning you with those. That's our mind. That's our flesh. That's the enemy. What he's doing is he's calling you with those struggles. He's not condemning because Christ was already condemned, innocent, the lamb, his blood poured out for you. How dare God condemn? It would make him an unrighteous God, which is far furthest from the truth as we know. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet what happens is, is he uses mankind for his purposes. Why is this what the psalmist is saying? And the writer of Hebrews is drawing attention to this under the context of the world to come. And he says, you've made him for a while a little lower than the angels. Now in Psalm 8, in some translations, it says you made him a little lower than God. And the word God in the Old Testament is Elohim, one of the words of God. It's a plural word, but it's also used for angels. It's used as the word to use to communicate the word messenger. It's even as a word to communicate De demonic entities, the enemies of God, Satan. So, but in that context, it's the messengers of the angels that God has made us a little bit lower than. That realm, that realm of being in the supernatural, in the spiritual world. There's a created hierarchy, okay? We see it throughout the scriptures. And God has made us a little lower than the angels. And like we said last week, we are going to judge angels. But for now, we're made a little bit lower now, you would think because of our filthiness, because of our rebellion against God, because of us constantly going our own way, repeatedly, after, on and on, after, over and over again, that God would be given up on us. But that's the further things, furthest thing from the truth. He crowns us with glory and honor. Now, I just want you to know, I'll give you a little highlight from later in the sermon. If you go down to verse 9, who is the one crowned with glory and honor? Christ. So we are crowned with glory and honor in Christ, not on our own goodness. And it also says you've appointed him, meaning mankind, over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So he put all things under his feet, under our feet. And it says, but it says that, but we do not even see all the things subjected to him yet. We still don't see everything that's subjected to us, right? So Adam was in the garden and God gave him he, all the animals, everything, all the land was in subjection to mankind. But now what happened is, is Jesus reinstituted that stewardship that God gave mankind in the garden because it was lost after they sinned. And so the Great Commission is a reiteration of that command, go be fruitful and multiply. Instead, go out now and proclaim the gospel to all the nations. But now we, are we have that authority back in place where we can go out for Christ 
under his authority. And we could now have, we have all things are in subjection to Christ. And we are his ambassadors to do that. We are his undercover slash agents, if you will, although not undercover Christians. We are the ones that are out there acting on his behalf. And so what we see is this picture, this bigger picture starting to get a little bit more clearer. There is other things that we are going to have rule and dominion over is what he is talking about. And that's in this next world, this new age to come. So again, he gives this clue in verse five and again and in verse eight of where he's going. All things are under subjection under his feet and, 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 it's, and it's the world to come that he's talking about in terms of this great salvation, that one aspect of it. <clears throat> now, what is the larger picture here that we're talking about? You see, a lot of us, we hear about salvation and we automatically think about what? The gospel, right? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So it starts with the gospel message. The gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is heard. Jesus, according to the scriptures, lived a life, a sinless life. He was the sacrifice that God prepared, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. When you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is tied into what we were saying before. There's no condemnation. It's because your sins are forgiven in Christ. And then Christ rises from the dead. He defeats death. He defeats sin. And you along with him. How? By believing in him. And we talked last week. It's an active belief. It's a cleaving. Cleaving to something means leaving something else. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave onto his wife. But again, it's even bigger than just the result of that. Okay, I'm saved. I know my eternal security is there. I know I'm going to go to heaven and be with Christ when I die. It's much more than that. Even more than the defeat of sin. Even more than Jesus ruling in his kingdom. Well, where am I going with that? Is there anything else to say after that? Well, there is. You see, the gospel, what this writer is saying, is about a restored humanity in this age to come. A restored humanity with full rule and reign. To dwell, as we know from looking at the scriptures, eschatologically, in God's temple, in his presence, in the new creation, for all ages and for all eternity. That's big, right? That's amazing. But again, it's more, it's man ruling with Christ in this age and in the age to come. Rule under God. Now this is, I believe, a part of this, what he's saying here is this is the greatness of mankind's role in this present and coming world. He is to rule in the place of God under God. But again, none of this could have ever happened without Jesus coming to save us. And this is why he had to become a man. And this is the argument in this whole text and from chapter 1, the very beginning. They weren't listening to the way God was communicating with them, who is now Jesus, the Son of God. It's no longer the Old Testament prophets. It's no longer anything else. He now speaks to us through His Son. 
And so he established the argument that his, the son is the king and that he's God himself. But now he's, uh, he's establishing the argument that this king, how he's going to rule is through his people, which is why he had to become a man. One aspect of that, I should say. And that's why he says in verse 9, he tells us who and what do we see? Because we don't see the new age right now. We see it breaking in. We see love conquering. And that's what you have to realize. Love never fails. It's love that does the conquering. You know, a lot of people want to see physical victory. You want to see political victory. We want to see everything get better. And that's a yearning from us, God in us. We want justice. We want good things to start happening. But the, but the ultimate way that happens is through persecution, tribulation, friction. That's when things start to grow. Resistance makes it grow. And the way that we get through that is love. Love is the ultimate weapon for us to bring forth the kingdom of God. First of all, love for Christ and for what he's done. Love for our neighbor and people and our enemies. And understanding what our place is in this world now has everything to do with what our place will be in the next world to come. And I don't mean as a rewards-based system, and I'm not talking about salvation versus condemnation. I'm talking about everything you're doing in this life. God has put you exactly where you are. And I look out and I see so many different, because I know most of you here, and I see so many different people with so many different callings in so many different life situations. And you know what? A lot of you may be saying, well, man, I can't wait to get out of this situation so I could really get going when God is saying, no, I have you where you're at. Because it is going to be a little bit of sludge that you're going to have to walk through. This kingdom business is bloody. We talked about that this morning. Timothy saying, uh, getting told by, by Paul, fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight. It's not a cakewalk. It's not, go, it's not just that Jesus is going to make your life better. It's that Jesus is making you better for his purposes. Okay, like we say, the movie that your favorite movie, it has a hero who has problems. And he goes after a goal. But when he goes after the goal, what happens? All of his problems and all of his weaknesses and all of his ghosts from his past come up to him to battle him. And through him going to the journey, he overcomes those things for his own glory. But for you, it's for the glory of God. And that is the greatness, I believe, of this salvation. Jesus says, or Paul, he says about Jesus, but we do see him, Jesus. So again, just to be sure that you're not lost here, when it says for in subjecting all things to him, that's a lowercase h, he, uppercase h, left nothing that is not subject to him, lowercase h. So he's talking about mankind, that God left nothing that he didn't subject on earth to mankind. But then it says in verse 9, but we do see him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor so that by grace, he, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
could sound weird. By the grace of God, he may taste death. By the grace of God. It wasn't by the, you know, the regret of God. He had to taste death. Do you see that love there that God has for you? That he looked upon his son suffering and fulfilling his mission of conquering sin because of his grace and love for you. So he could crown you with glory and honor. So you can actually be that kingdom building person that he intended us to be from the beginning. No matter who you are, again, you can be the most effective uh, church worker. You can be doing all sorts of ministry. But if you're outside of the blood of Christ, you're doing it for yourself. You're building on wood, hay, stubble, all those things. It's going to burn. Those works are going to burn. They're not going to stand. But in Christ, even the most insignificant thing you think is insignificant, just a a regular old day at the office, you have no idea what you can impact, what word you may say to somebody. One word, two words, one look. Maybe it's somebody that you say hello to that nobody else says hello to. You don't even think it matters, but to them, they're watching, they're impacted. I've seen that so many times in workplaces. Somebody leaves and they're like, oh man, that guy was just, or that gal was just, I just so much, I liked them, they would always do that. And you would never even know it from their relationship, but it was an impact. Now take it to the level of Christianity. When you can comfort those that are hurting. When you can speak into each other's lives. The most basic foundation is your relationships with each other. Jesus said that you'll know my disciples, you'll know people will know you're my disciples by how? By how you love each other. <clears throat> and that's the essence of the church, is to, is to work in the power of the Holy Spirit by laying our lives down for God and for each other. Our friends, helping, assisting, loving. This is how the kingdom grows. And this is why Jesus, when it says here, that he, because of the suffering of death, was crowned with glory and honor so that by grace, he suffered death. He just didn't go and come down and just run to the electric chair or run to the cross or dive off of a mountain and just get it over with. Yeah, that was the son of God. He came and died. You know, I mean, literally, the baby could have been born. It would have been a brutal, brutal thing. I mean, Herod, we see in the story of, of the birth of Christ, he eliminated every firstborn, and I guess this was a couple of years after the birth, birth of Christ, the, the commentators say, and, and these children were, were killed. You know, how come, God? Just Why couldn't it have just been Jesus there? And then everybody says, oh, you know, then Christmas would have a whole other aspect to it. No, do you know why? Because he had to live the life that you could not live. He had to be tempted in every way that you are tempted. So that way he could identify you, as we're going to talk about next week or the week after, as brethren. As brethren. His life for your life, but many, many, many lives. Because it was the blood of the Son of God that, that did it. He was God. People say, well, I don't think it's fair that God would bring us into the world uh, and just condemn us to, uh, to hell because we don't believe in him. Well, how about this? He sent himself His son, he came and died. And he wasn't a criminal. He was perfect. He never sinned once. He lived a perfect life, but yet he was treated like a criminal. 
He was whipped. He was brutalized. He was crowned in glory with a, with a crown of thorns to represent the curse that he was conquering. And all the time, the enemy had no idea what was going on. He said, yep, you're sending another one of your prophets. I'm going to take care of him. Oh, this is the Messiah. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to try to tempt him first. Oh, that didn't work. Let's just watch closely when this guy starts to get full of himself and he's going to claim to be king and then he's going to get killed by the Romans and then we have victory. That's like another version of screw tape letters right there for you. Right? That's what was the enemy could be, you know, to paraphrase him, I guarantee it was something. That's what he was thinking. I mean, on, on our small little pea brains, that's what I could come up with. But ultimately it was. He, he, tr- he turned the tables on the power of darkness. He tricked them, made a public display of them, laughing at them because they thought they were gaining the victory. Jesus gained the ultimate victory through death and suffering. And so I I say that with a a caveat that, yes, you are the tool and instrument in God's hands to build for his kingdom, but you won't escape suffering. You won't escape pain. That's part of the process of your sanctification. It's part of the way that God brings in his kingdom. On how we respond to that multiplies the purpose and the value of it. Multiplies the impact when people see it and hear it. That people are forgiven for their sins against you. Great sins. People who've hurt you, who've hurt your kids, who've hurt your family, who've hurt important things to you and you've forgiven them. People go, why? Because I was forgiven. Much greater And not just because of that. I'm not just doing it because of that. I'm doing it because I actually want to because I'm a new person in Christ. Believe me, if it was before Christ, I would go out for revenge. If it was before Christ, I would go out to get what's mine. But that's not how Christ works. The kingdom is built inside, through, inside of your heart. Starts it. That's where the kingdom starts here. And it's manifested out in the works that you do under the kingship and royalty of Christ. And so imagine living your whole life as a Christian with a small perspective and expectation of salvation. Just heaven. I mean, that's fine. You can do that. I mean, I'm the first one, you know, when when we go down the shore, let's say a couple years ago, we go down the shore for the weekend or for the week. I like just sitting in the room. I don't like going to the beach. I don't like getting wet. And my family looks at me and goes, you are missing out on everything, you know? And I do it. I mean, I, I, I do it. Don't, I'm not that bad. But imagine going to a beach house, right? And you just shut the, you're on the beach, you shut the blinds, and you, you just enjoy that smell. And you're, you're getting a little bit of it, but you're not getting that full impact, that big perspective of the, of, of the, of the beach, the sand, the everything, the beauty, the smell. If Jersey, yeah, they're the Jersey people smart laughing there. Yeah, but it, it does have a certain smell. Like when you, when you head over the bridge, right, going down the shore, you start, you get the smell. I don't know about you, but regardless of how stanky, stanky it is, I still get that, the feeling like when I was a kid going down the shore, you know, it still brings that, that memory back. <clears throat> now, so how should we then live here? Well, number one, should we live in the pleasures of sin? Imagine that, like see, you see the impact, see what your great salvation you were saved for, but yet you, when you live for sin, you slam on the brakes and you step out of God's will and you play around over here to your own damage and fault. 
and you destroy yourself because the wages of sin is death. And that's why God says, repent and turn from that sin. I'm not, it's not because I'm a tyrant that's making a checklist of every little thing so I can get you on it later. He's saying, that's not what your purpose is. Your, your purpose is to be on this road. Don't go hang out over here, pleasing your flesh. That would be like the prodigal son staying in the pig slop. If the story ended like that, he's just going to stay in that slop. What did he say? Wait a second. I could, I, I could go back home and be with my father and be part of his estate. What am I doing? He had the name. He had the inheritance. Why is he doing that? That's a little bit, I would say, crazy. You see, the, the big picture is that God, well, put, put it this way. Imagine Satan, he, has the, he had the deed to planet Earth. And he also held the mortgage. A mortgage that was grossly expensive, that was growing in interest, multiplying times a thousand every single day. Jesus came and he not only took the deed, because you can't take a deed of a house without taking on all of the liens and all of the mortgages attached to that house. So if one of you right now who owes $100,000 on your house said, Pat, here you go, here's the deed, I would say, well, I would have to rent that house to pay that mortgage payment because that mortgage is going to come along with that ownership. And Satan, by God's curse, rightfully, according to God's justice, had the deed to planet Earth, to creation, beyond planet Earth, all of creation. And Jesus came, and not only did he get the deed, but he paid the mortgage debt in full. Now, you pick, grab that picture and that analogy for a second. But imagine the house that he just purchased for billions of dollars, let's say, is just this total ugly tear-down house. You're like, what, what is going on? And Jesus says, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it very good? But Lord, it's, it's destroyed. I know. But this is why I've saved you. Because you're part of the rehab team. Every one of you. You're not all going to do drywall. You're not all going to do foundation work. You're not all going to do the roof. You're all going to have a different part. And ultimately, one day, you're going to claim residence in that home. And that is the big perspective. Jesus didn't save you to get out of here. We have to have that paradigm shift. Whenever it's the Lord's time for you to go, great. Lord, take me when it's time. But while I'm here, I'm going to work for him, with him, and towards that kingdom. And now everything I do becomes important in, in that value. It doesn't become like, don't become neurotic about it and obsessive about it, but just become joyful about it. Become joyful about what you're, what you, with this inheritance that you have. You're crowned with glory and honor. You were made a little bit lower than the angels and you have all things in subjection. There's nothing off, off the table. Christ the gospel can impact as far as sin has destroyed. It can, it can, it's reversing curses everywhere, in prisons, in schools, in homes, and most importantly, first, in lives. So I would encourage you to rethink this aspect of salvation. And the best way to do it is to just simply exclude nothing from the rule of Christ in your life. Nothing. And even, and I'm going as far as social issues as well. 
compare them to what the word of God says and be that prophetic voice. You know, that's why, you know, some of us are so passionately pro-life, right? Because we see this as the man, it's very, it's a very obvious, it's man made in the image of God that's being destroyed, but that's, that prophetic voice needs to be heard everywhere. I would also encourage you to reread the scriptures with these glasses on, not these specific glasses, but the glasses of this salvation, the expanse of it, and see how the scripture begins to make an, uh, become alive, the, it, it's, it starts to widen out. And you see that this is what Jesus is pointing to many times when he is speaking. So have that large perspective, have that big expectation of what the, even the smallest thing that you're doing right now for Christ can have on the kingdom, that impact. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would use us, God, that we, you would see... What you, that we would see what you've made us for, what you've saved us for, and that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we would walk in faith, Lord. Maybe some of us here, God, are just sitting in a neutral place. We're sitting, uh, we're idling. We may be drifting here and there. I pray, Lord, that, that we would see exactly what we're doing right now and, igno- and know it's exactly where you want us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that needs to come to, to, the, to, the, to the realization that you are the only way that they are able to ever get right with God through the blood of Christ and believing in that, that they would surrender to you today, Lord. They would give you that, that faith. They would give you that belief, Lord, that you've ignited in their heart. I pray over that right now that Jesus would become all that they can think about that Jesus would be keeping them up at night, that their conscience would be calling them, Lord, that they would be saved, God, and that they would accept that free offer of grace and forgiveness that only comes through the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's all stand together as we sing our last worship song.